You may not know why now, but the story that we're going to study today is a very valuable story. A very, very valuable story. It will be especially valuable to you in that time when you go through trouble and when you go through a storm. Uh, in 1959, Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin was flying his jet at 48,000 feet when he suffered catastrophic engine failure. He was forced to eject from his aircraft over cumulonimbus clouds, a gigantic storm cloud that, that gives even seasoned pilots intestinal cramps. He said, you've seen one, when fully mature, the cumulonimbus is a color flower-shaped cloud with billowy towers and turrets that can reach altitudes of 75,000 feet. On its peak, it sits a distinct anvil-shaped top. When a group of cumulonimbus clouds get together, they form menacing supercells. You don't want to attend the party unless you're one of those supernaturally stupid people on the TV show Storm Chasers. Colonel Rankin is the only man to fall through the king of clouds and live to tell about it. In the center of the cloud, Rankin was met by rising air blasts that shot him heavenward. When hurled toward earth by brutal downdrafts, large hailstones at the mercy of some forces pummeled the helpless pilot. Bolts of lightning passed frighteningly close, followed by thunder so fierce that Rankin claims he felt it more in his body than in his ears. This was nature's bedlam, he said, an ugly black cage of screaming violent lunatics beating me with big fat sticks, roaring at me, screeching, trying to crush me or rip me from their hands. And the guy who wrote this says, 1986 felt like that to me. (laughs) Have you ever had an experience that felt like that? Well, if you haven't, guess what? You will. And, And when you do, you will find a story like this very, very, very valuable to you. Now, the story is the subject of a painting. This uh, slide doesn't do the painting uh, justice at all. It's a beautiful uh, painting. And the painting is Rembrandt's on the Sea of, uh, Storm on the Sea of Galilee. There are in his painting 14 people in the boat. And the theory is that he's painted himself into this picture. In the boat on the Sea of Galilee before Jesus calmed the storm. This is a valuable painting. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that this painting was in Boston until the 1990s, and in a huge theft, it was stolen, along with other paintings worth over $500 million. It's a valuable painting, people. But I think that you'll see that among God's people who love God and who treasure Jesus, this story is even more valuable than that painting. And today, if you will, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. As we read Matthew chapter 8 and verses uh, 23 through 27. Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And today, let's stand together as we read uh, the Word of God. And now when he, Jesus, got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to him, 
Why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father, we ask your favor and your blessing, your supernatural blessing on the reading, on the teaching of the Word of God today. And I pray that for those that are here who, have, who are in a storm or are, are about to pass through one soon, that you would be more real to them than ever before as we consider this part of your Word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Be seated. In the beautiful providence of God, we arrived, as we're preaching through this section, at this story on this Sunday in a way that I think you're going to agree in a moment is kind of neat. We were on the Sea of Galilee. It was an experience I will never forget. And one of the things that is most memorable about it was the teaching that was given there on the Sea of Galilee, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And the teacher, he's present with us today. And I asked uh, Bill Vandenbosch, I did not call him ahead of time, this is entirely impromptu. But he graciously, come up please, he willingly said he would come and he would share a bit with us. Pastor Bill Vandenbosch is going to come and just share some of what he said on the, on, the, uh, on the boat that day. And he's shy about his wonderful vacation wear. So give him a round of applause so he knows he's welcome at Evangel Baptist. God bless you. <laughs> Use this mic or this mic, whichever you prefer. You know, uh, is this on? Yes, it is. Are we okay? Okay. Uh, Pastor Ken, I think you've put me in the storm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, praise God for you too, by the way, and for your people who are with us. Uh, and a wonderful welcome we've had this morning. We thank God for you and uh, for the work that God is doing here. That word chaos, storm, it fits. And I want to get the picture, the story. And in every story, there's a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I want you to go just a little bit back with me to what was happening just before the storm. Jesus had been teaching, and he had been healing, and especially he had been in a struggle with the demonic. In uh, chapter 8, uh, there's just this picture. Uh, Jesus uh, has the crowds pressing around him. Uh, in verse um, uh, 16, people who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. All right? And then, after he'd been with the crowds and in this struggle with the demonic, Jesus says in verse 18, when he saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross over to the other side of the lake. All right. That's the beginning. Struggling with the crowds, struggling with the demonic. Now I'm going to take you to the end. On the other side of the lake, Jesus did something. He met someone. In Matthew, he met two someones. Two demon-possessed people. And he was going to struggle with the demonic again. Now, in the middle, catch the picture, is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was not just this wonderful, uh, well, Lake Michigan or Lake Huron uh, or some inland lake here in Michigan. 
to the disciples being good Jewish folks. The sea represented chaos, the abyss. They were desert people. They were people used to being on firm ground. But if you've ever been in the sea in a storm, well, you've been tossed about like that picture we just heard about the pilot. And the demonic forces were in control of the abyss, of the chaos, of the sea. And just to add on top of that, this picture, in the Old Testament, the god of the storms of the ancient Canaanites was Baal. And when storms came, demons were at work. And now here's Jesus. Have you ever had a tough week? And you're glad Sunday's coming? (laughs) And you're not even so sure you want to get up in the morning to go to church because you're exhausted? That's the kind of week Jesus had. He had been preaching and struggling with the demonic. And he wanted to get away. So he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. Let's go for a midnight cruise, if you would. All right? And Mark tells us that leaving the crowds behind, they took Jesus just as he was into the boat. In other words, he was exhausted, worn out. <sighs> yeah, I mean that, that, and he fell asleep. And it wasn't an ordinary sleep. It was an exhaustion sleep. You don't sleep through a storm unless you're exhausted. I'm sure you've been there. Uh, I heard a little thunder last night, I believe, around here. At least it was where we stayed in Detroit. And I got out of bed because I had a sea. We do that in the storm. But Jesus slept through it. Why? He was exhausted. And all around him, and that's what the disciples saw, the forces of hell were breaking in on them. The fear they had was the fear of the demonic, not just the storm. And the power of the storm and their fear filled them And they cried out to Jesus, Lord, save us. I have to ask a question. How many of us here are not morning people? Is there anybody here who's not? Come on. How do we wake up? Right? Oh, we hardly know what's coming off. That's a little bit of the sense that I have of how Jesus woke up. Out of deep exhaustion, and he stands, and really he's at his weakest moment. And he gets on his feet, and he says to the storm simply, Be quiet. And the storm was still. And it's a powerful picture 
Satan was at his strongest. Jesus was at his weakest. And the power of Jesus at his weakest is always greater than the power of Satan, even as his, at his strongest. Well done, Pastor. God bless you. Thanks so much. That's so what I wanted you to hear this morning. And... Uh, that we got to hear there. The setting is wonderful here today. Not nearly as wonderful as it was uh, that day. Pastor Vandenbosch, thank you so much. So have you had a day like that lately? Or have you been through a season like that lately? Or is this a year like that for you? For a lot of people in our area and in our beautiful state of Michigan and around the world, around the, around the U.S., there are financial storms going on and they're difficult. I talked to a guy this week, he he told me, he said, my heart is beating fast. He's one of these guys that's struggling to launch. And we have a lot of young people in our church right now. Maybe they're single. Maybe they think they're not going to be single forever, but they're really not sure. Maybe they're unemployed or they're underemployed. And they really wonder what their life is going to look like. It really is just a storm in our day and age. It's a tough thing for a, a kid, if you don't mind me saying it, in his 20s or so to launch. Yesterday, I was, I decided I would help Chuck a little bit. He's candidating. He's speaking at a church in Kentucky at his second time he's been down there. And so I said I'd take his car and, and I decided to put some gas in his car, but I don't know his car very well. So, I, like I normally do, I locked the doors when I went to pump the gas, but the gas, uh, little gas compartment doesn't open except by an inside trigger. So I went back to unlock it and I put the key in the door and the key doesn't work on the door. So I was locked out. I'm at a gas station over here where I go all the time. I'm always witnessing to the people there. They know me by, on a first name basis. Hey, Ferris. Hey, Ken. How you doing? Lisa, how you doing? Fine. So I'm walking around the car thinking, how am I going to get in this car? My cell phone's locked inside. I realized the key, though, works on the hatch, which was handy. There's a little hatch in the back. So I open up. <laughs> you know where this is going then, huh? So I'm kind of looking around thinking, I do not want to crawl through that back window there. Chuck has stored some things in the back of his truck that I don't want to crawl through particularly. But after a while, it's like, I got to get in here. So I crawl my fat backside up into the back of this truck and I got my legs hanging out and I'm able to reach up and unlock the back door. Now I'm e- I can either back out or I can just go on in and kind of being built the way I am. Backing out was going to be kind of awkward. So... I went on in. Now I'm in the back of the car with the other stuff that Chuck has in the back of his car. Now I've got to go over one more seat in order to get to the back door to get out. I got on my cargo shorts, which I buy kind of big and loose because they're more comfortable like that. But if you crawl over the back seat with loose cargo shorts, sometimes they come clear off. And you you got to be really careful about that. Especially if you're in a gas station where everybody knows you and you pastor or... In that town, you're in the back seat of a car in a gas station in broad daylight with no pants on. It's just awkward. It's all get out. So, got my britches back on. Some of you are saying, when does this message get serious? It doesn't. Relax. So, I got my pants back on and everything and got got in the car. I called Chuck this morning. He's down. How you doing? He had to get up at 3 o'clock this morning and go down there. And so, I was burdened for him. He's trying to launch. He's the guy whose heart was pounding this week. 
So my heart was pounding. When his heart is pounding, I said, how you doing? He said, I'm kind of nervous. I said, you'll be all right. Do what I do. Go in the bathroom where nobody can see you and do jumping jacks. He said, okay. He goes, you might want to pray for me. I forgot my pants. I'm like, seriously, this is a pattern now. He, he got his jacket, but he didn't have his pants. So he's, can you imagine you're candidating? Don't tell him I told you this, by the way. It's going to be a secret just between us guys. So he's, I was praying for him this morning. He's like, do you have somebody that you love desperately? You'd rather they succeed than you succeed. You'd give them anything you have, and they're going through it. Now you're in a storm together. Their heart is pounding. Your heart is pounding. Their hands are trembling. Your hands are trembling. I won't overdo this. Forgive me. Just let me throw this in. A few years ago, my boy was up north, and he's far away from home, and he's alone. And I stand in my office, and I walk around in my study, and I pray. And I, if I have pictures on my wall, I pray for our missionaries, and I pray for you. I pray for people. His pictures are on the wall. I have a big picture of Chuck, and I was praying for him, and I had an impression in my soul, as strong as it could be, of his hands trembling. And I didn't get it. I wondered why that was that way, and I prayed for him. So I called him on the phone, and I said, how you doing, Chuck? He goes, I'm doing okay. I said, can you tell me why, when I pray about you, your hands are trembling? He goes, are you kidding me? I go, no, I'm serious. He goes, Dad, my hands have been trembling all day. Well, the next day we talked about it a little bit more, and there's a kind of a rational explanation. He has allergies, and he'd, he'd probably taken too much allergy medicine, and that will make your hands tremble. But his God told his dad to pray for him. You know you have a Heavenly Father that watches over every step of your life. He knows if your heart is beating. He knows if your hands are trembling. He knows if you're unemployed. He knows if you're underemployed. He knows if your marriage is tough. He knows if your kids aren't where they ought to be. He understands that. He cares about you. You understand to follow Jesus means sometimes he's going to say, let's get in the boat. Then he's going to take you out in the middle of a lake and then he's going to arrange a storm for you. And to the point where even if you were a seasoned sailor, you would be saying, why don't you care for me, God? Don't you even care that I'm dying here? We're all going to drown. And these seasoned sailors out on the sea say to Jesus, don't you even care about us? Can you imagine ever getting to a point where you would say to the Savior, the Lord Jesus, I don't think you care about me anymore. But he's got us in a point where all of our sailing skills aren't going to do us any good. And all of our charm, and all of our wit, and all of our money, and all of our stuff. He wants to bring us to a point, at some point in our life, He will bring us to a point of desperation, where we will cry out to Him, and in that point of desperation, then we'll understand, there's no one like Jesus. Who in the world could ever stand up, and by speaking, calm a storm? And who will ever bring peace to your soul? But the one who can stand up in the storm, waken from a deep sleep and speak peace to the storm. I read an awesome book this week. Louis, it's a book about Louis Zamperini. How many of you read the Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken? Anybody here? I'm ahead of you on this one. It's an amazing read. Can I give you the short Cliff Notes version? Louis Zamperini is the son of an Italian immigrant. He's trouble. He lives in Torrance, California, and everybody there, the police all know he's trouble. 
he steals and he runs away from the police. He runs away from the police really fast. After a while, somebody channels him into track and field. He becomes an Olympic athlete, a U.S. Olympic athlete. And then he tumbles into World War II. In World War II, he's flying over the Pacific and his plane goes down. Some of the men died. So the three of the men survived. They're on a raft 47 days in the Pacific. It's a, it's a record. They survived 47 days in the Pacific. And then they're made prisoners of war in Japan. They were brutally treated and mistreated. He was kept alive only to be used for propaganda. He was tortured and beaten for over a year and a half. And then finally, at the end of the war... He was released. His mother and sister had been praying for him every day. The first thing his mother did when she realized that Louis was alive, for year, for year over a year, they didn't even know he was alive. They thought he was dead. And the first thing that his mother did when she realized that he would be released and would come home, and in this most touching passage in the book, she went directly to church and she gave thanks to God for answering her many prayers and sparing his life. Home he came. Handsome young Italian fellow, he won the heart of a beautiful young socialite who wasn't really discerning and careful to recognize that he had he was a very troubled, very wounded, very emotionally broken man. And so shortly after their wedding, things went bad. And he descended into alcoholism and immoral behavior, and she got pregnant. He, she woke up in the night, and he was choking her one night in, a post, in an episode of post-traumatic stress disorder. He was choking his own pregnant wife in the night. She divorced him, and she went back home. And he was farther and farther away from sanity, plunged into alcoholism. A very, very, very sad story. This has been quite a week, because usually for me, when God puts me in a passage of Scripture, I start reading about, I read the passage over and over again, and then I begin to ask questions of the passage and then I begin to gather information about the passage so that I understand the passage. And, but something else has to happen for me. For me, I have to be plunged into it viscerally. I have to have, I have to experience the passage in order for me to preach the passage properly. There has to be some experience. And of course, that kind of experience came to me secondhand through some of you having a sister here whose father passed away this week, Tony Hill. And she has confidence of his love for God and his love for her. We have folks who, you know, are very, very ill in our church. And But there are probably scores of you who suffer kind of silently. And you don't tell people. You put the smile you're supposed to put on, and you're nice to other people. But there are things that make your heart pound and things that make your hands tremble and people that you desperately care about and big prayer requests that are like impossible, that don't ever seem to go away. And it seems like when you followed Jesus, he put you in the boat, took you out in the middle of the lake, and arranged a really scary storm while he was sleeping. <laughs> and you're tempted to say, don't you even care if I die? And then he has a question for you. Weren't you going to believe in me? Cynthia Zamparini came back to make arrangements for the divorce to Los Angeles. As I read the book, Laura Hillenbrand is a gifted storyteller. She's the one who wrote Sea Biscuit. Some of you have read that. 
I didn't anticipate what was going to happen in this story. I'm sitting in my recliner reading this, and it takes a beautiful, beautiful turn. It, 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 it literally thrilled me to read what, what's happening. I could see it unfold as Laura told the story. They were staying in a dumpy apartment complex. They were, they were living at odds with each other for a few days while they finalized the divorce. And a, a person that occupied an apartment near them on their hall said, hey, there's a, there's a meeting downtown. There's this southern evangelist that's in town this week. They say it's something. His, his name is Billy Graham. Why don't you come with us? She went. And she came home that night completely changed. So she began to pester her husband. She says, you got to come with me. He says, are you kidding? You become a religious fanatic on top of all of this? You really think I'm going to do that? She began to pester him. He went. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to listen. We're going to sit in the back. We're going to leave. And they did. She began to pester him to return on Sunday. He said, there's no way I'm going to go. He, she said, she pestered him more. He went. He said, here's what we're going to do. When he says, every eye, every eye, every head bowed and every eye closed, she said, that's when we're going to get out. And under those conditions, I will go. She said, deal. They went, sat in the back. Billy Graham preached. Laura Hillenbrand includes much of the trans, or significant parts of the transcript of Billy Graham's gospel message that night in this secular book, Unbroken. That night, he says, every head bowed and every eye closed. He says, now. They start to move toward the aisle. Billy Graham says, no one leaving now. You can leave while I'm preaching, but you can't leave while I'm giving an invitation. But he says, I'm going anyway. And he gets out to the aisle, and then he remembers, drifting in the Pacific, he made a promise to God. God, if you get me out of here, I will serve you. And he turned down the aisle and was miraculously converted to Christ. Today, he's 98 years old, still living, and all of these years has lived an outstanding testimony to Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen its way for everybody, but he was immediately delivered from alcohol, and he had a tobacco habit that he didn't want to have, and he was delivered from that. And he's gone on around the world, including Japan. He went back to Japan, and he visited the very POW camp, now where war crimes prisoners were interred. And he spoke there, and he went to the back of the room where some of the very guards that had persecuted him were, and embraced each one of them. The cruelest guard, a guy they called the bird, he wrote him a letter offering his forgiveness to this this homicidal, wicked man. Only Jesus Christ can stand up in a life like Louis Zamperini and speak peace to that. So I don't know what it is you brought here today or how hard it's been for you. But I do know that Jesus Christ is the master of the sea. Paul Gardner and I were at camp last week. And I like Paul. He's a dear friend of mine. And I love it when he spends a little bit of time with me. And he has a little golf cart he tools around on up there. He said, let's, let's go out in the forest. I want to show you something. Out in the national forest. I said, that'd be great. I knew I'd get to spend some time with him. So out into the national forest we went. Now, you think I'm a storyteller? Paul is a wonderful storyteller. When I'm around him, I try to be quiet, let him talk. It's really hard for me, but I do it. He told me an amazing story I will tell you another day. But then we got out to this point. He wanted me to see this eagle point. We just stood there together. We're looking over this eagle point, this gorgeous place. 
And he says to me, do you see those scraggly pines? You see those beautiful towering pines in the back that are very green? Yes. He says, up close, there's a scraggly, kind of scruffy-looking pines. Yes. He says, those are jack pines. He says, the jack pine is the preferred habitat of a bird called the Kirkland's warbler, the rarest of warblers. It only lives in that little part of, of Michigan. In all of the world, it only lives in that little part of Michigan, the Kirkland's warbler. He says he's seen people come and stay in Gaylord and leave their wife at a hotel and come out with binoculars just so that they can say they'd seen the Kirkland's warbler. And the Kirkland's warbler nests on the ground and it lives in the lower branches and feeds in the lower branches of jack pines. Now, Paul, he, he's, he's, uh, he says, you know, what's interesting about those jack pines, he said this, he said, the Kirkland's warbler lives in Michigan in the summertime and it lives in the Bahamas in the wintertime. That is one smart bird right there. <laughs> Amen. But he said what's interesting about the, the jack pine is, he said, the cone of the jack pine will not release its seeds under any circumstances. It holds its seeds very, very tightly. And there's only one thing that will cause a jack pine cone to release its seeds and that is a fire God arranged and created a tree so that if a fire comes and devastates the forest the seeds of new life will be released that's the kind of God we serve do you know him? do you trust him? do you love him? when you're in a storm will you cry out to him? In desperate prayer, sing with me a hymn that I love, found on page number 88. And please don't go away today. If we can be a help to you in any way, we have pastors and leaders, men and women, young and old, that will hang around and they won't run away. Stand with me, please. Stand with me. They won't run away. And we'll be here to give you counsel to help you. But let's sing about the mighty power of God. Number 88. Sing the mighty power of God.